It's been a wonderful service so far, and I want to just pause before we start to thank the many volunteers who consistently give of their time to help us. You know, there are some people who uh, are here at 7 a.m. every Sabbath doing various things around the church that are unseen, unnoticed, but felt by us all. And we are so grateful for your dedicated, tireless service on behalf of this community. There are some who um, recognize the call of this church so much, they will see weeds on the side, go home, get implements, and take those weeds out. They have a sense of ownership and pride in this congregation that is wonderful to see. Uh, This morning as well, I want to say a special thank you because I have missed hearing a certain sound in the last few weeks, and I'm so glad that we had the thunderous, sonorous, beautiful playing of Dr. Scott back in our congregation um, this morning. With a wonderful beard as well. He, he, he just gets more handsome. Um, We're so glad that he's back with us. Um, And also a warm welcome to all of our students who are here. Some of you, this is your second Sabbath for 2019. Some of you, well, 2019-20 school year. Others of you, this is your second. And we're so glad that you are here worshiping with us. We hope to see you for the rest of the school year. Let's bow our heads together and let's pray as we... um, encounter the word. Father in heaven, in this moment, we commit ourselves to you. We ask that you will still the uh, thoughts of our mind. We pray that you will help us to be attentive and to be open to what you have for each of us. Lord, we may hear some things that challenge us. We may hear some things that make us pause, and we ask that your Holy Spirit will find a receptive home in our hearts. We pray that as we leave and as we hear your words, we will leave changed and transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1974, Thomas Nagel, who is a philosopher, wrote in the Philosophy Review for Duke University, and the article he wrote was a curious one. It was entitled, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Now, we know that philosophers are generally quite uh, curious people. They are a little uh, strange in my estimation from my um, connection with philosophers. They are brilliant. They think with language and with words that sometimes are inaccessible to the majority of us. They will talk about terms that fly over our heads. But it's still curious to me that a philosopher would want to ask this question and make it a subject of research. What is it like to be a bat? So Thomas Nagel asked this question, and then he takes a step back from the question. He says, well, for us to figure out what it might uh, be like to be a bat, we will have to extrapolate some things. And in making this extrapolation, all we can do is have some observations, a loose schematic, which is based purely on observation because we cannot really know. So he says, we can observe that bats, for example, have webbed 
arms. So we could imagine that to be a bat would mean to have webbed arms, which allow you to fly at, at dusk and at dawn, to have a mouth which opens and catches insects for food. We can extrapolate that. We can also think that to be a bat means that you will have poor eyesight. And so the only way you're able to navigate the world, the only way you're able to make sense of the world is through echolocation that allows you to know what is going on and what is around you. And of course, we could imagine what it's like to hang upside down for 12 hours a day in some poor person's attic. But even if you can accurately um, imagine what it might be like to have webbed arms, to have poor eyesight, to use echolocation to find food, all of these variegated bat activities only tell us what it's like to behave as a bat behaves. None of these activities tell us what it's like for a bat to be a bat. Now, all of you who are looking at me thinking, what are you talking about? Check your class schedule and see if you have philosophy. You're going to love it. <laughs> and so he's asking these questions, and he comes down and lands the plane and essentially says, it's difficult for us to have a subjective view of the life of bats because they are biologically foreign to us. They are so far removed from what it's like to be a human being, we really cannot conceive what it's like to be a bat or a wasp or your next door neighbor's golden retriever. You have no idea. And so Nigel finishes and says it's beyond our mental grasp. And I think this morning as we go to our text, it's important for us to name and to understand that all of us have places and experiences and people that come into our orbit that we do not understand. They can be as foreign to us as it would be for someone to say, hey, do you know what it's like to be a bat? People can come in having experiences that we just don't understand. For example, you may one day meet someone who calls chips crisps. You may meet someone one day who calls the trunk the boot, who calls the hood the bonnet, who has nappies instead of diapers, who has dummies instead of pacifiers, who calls trolleys instead of carts. And you're confused. You hear English words, you don't know what they mean. And as much as there is a distance in terms of idiom and language, we can understand each other a little even with these things. But beyond the gaps that come from language, we can also have gaps of understanding and experience generationally. For example, we're going to have a picture that goes up, and I'm going to guess that at least 40% of the people in this congregation will have no clue what this thing is. You have no idea about the uh, potential joy that can come from having this in your life. <laughs> you don't know. You don't recognize the vistas of possibility that three megabytes could have given to you in the 90s 
When you were given this, it was like being given the keys to the car. There are some of you who sitting here have no idea of the painful frustration of waiting for this to happen in your life. You don't know what it's like to have your parents telling you to get off the phone because you are hogging up the phone line trying to get online so you can go on AOL or you can go on Messenger. You don't understand the struggle that people had in these Stone Age days of the early 2000s and late 90s. You don't understand what it was like to be an advanced math major and have to carry this implement around with you. No idea. You're like, what is this? It's called a slide rule, people. I didn't know. The Google told me, because I've never seen this thing in my life. <laughs> this is what was available before calculators. You don't know the struggle that people had. Oh, this one, oh, this one gets me. Let's put the next picture up. You have no idea what this thing is. Friends, friends, all my millennials, all my Gen Z people. Listen, once upon a time, TVs would shut off at 12. There would be no more programs. Can you believe the horror of that reality? And this would come on, the national anthem would play, and you could listen to it or you could go to sleep. There was no Netflix, there was no Hulu, you couldn't binge watch anything. TV would stop. And so we can hear about this or read about it, but we have no experience of it. And yet there are others who sit here this morning, and if you saw this image come up, you'd have no idea what this means. You don't know what people are doing sliding into each other's DMs. You don't know what they're doing taking pictures where they have bunny ears, or they have, you know, stars floating around them, or they're contoured because of the filter they have. You have no idea. This means nothing to you. And neither would this picture mean anything to you if you saw it. You don't know that people can spend eight months on Minecraft moving bricks to build worlds. It would make no sense to you because the generational gap can feel so vast, so vast that if this person was to walk past you on College Avenue, some of you, you'd say, Hey, ma'am, good to see you. You just keep walking. No idea who she is. No idea why the person in your row is laughing or nudging their friend. You don't know who she is, and neither would you know why she might get into a Twitter fight with someone and throw this as her card to end the conversation. No idea. Why is Kermit the Frog drinking tea? What has this got to do with anything? You don't know. And we can live in these silos where there are generational gaps and we don't understand each other. We may not be biologically different like a human being to a bat, but for someone born in 2000 who is now a freshman at Walla Walla University, their experience to you is completely foreign and you don't understand them. And today we come to 2 Kings chapter 5 and we come to the story of a young girl who has some deep demographic differences with the protagonist in this story and yet is able to transverse them and make a difference in her life. This is talking about the stewardship of the influence that God has given to us. And this is talking about how that stewardship is often in service of people we don't understand. 
And yet God summons us to use what he has given us to sometimes help people we don't understand, who are different to us. So 2 Kings chapter 5, we come across the story of Naaman. A story, if you've grown up in the church, and I know not everyone did, you would have seen with the felt on the boards, you'd have had a fantastic time doing Naaman. Maybe you had a fantastic Sabbath school teacher who had you do the actions and you got to dip seven times. You know, that's right up there behind being David in David and Goliath. It's a good story. And yet in this story, we come across uh, Naaman, who is the hero of the Syrian empire. And he has captured a young girl, given the young girl to his wife, and she is now the young girl's, the young, the wife's mistress working for her. Naaman has an interesting name. He is the hero of the Syrian empire, a mighty man of valor. And if you look at his name, it's an interesting name. It's Naam in the Hebrew, and Naaman's name means pleasant, delightful, lovely. And so you can see the author here in this Hebrew text doing some wordplay because he introduces us to a character who is a leper and whose name means lovely. And so Naaman here has the reality of who he is versus the reality of what he might have been in his name. He was once lovely, he was once mighty, and now he is a leper. And so this young lady comes and she is forced to serve in the house of Naaman. And the generational and distance gap could not be bigger. We're going to look through some of the differences that they have. So bring Naaman on stage. And if we were to bring Naaman on stage and we were to label him, this is what we would find about Naaman. Number one, Naaman is a, he's an adult. That's the first thing. He's an adult. She isn't. Naaman is male. He is powerful. He is privileged. He is rich. He is free. He is a citizen. Naaman. We bring on stage the young lady, and then we start to go through what her characteristics are. And we find she is a child, she is female, she is weak, she is marginalized, she is poor, she is a slave, and she is a foreigner. How cavernous a distance do we have between Naaman and this young girl in the story? It's huge. It's bigger than not knowing who Cardi B is. It's much bigger than that. They do not live in the same world. They do not have the same cultural framework of reference. They don't know each other from Adam. And here she is with this huge demographic distance, and yet she does something which, in my mind, makes no sense. She steps into the gap, and she wants to help. The Bible doesn't say this, but I think this is a type of young lady who, if she had the chance, would have helped everyone in Syria, even though they should have been her enemies. But because she couldn't help everyone, she did for one what she wished she could do for all. She finds Naaman and she helps him, even though he is her enemy and even though she may have wanted to help everyone else. 
I stop on this sentence because I've realized in my life, I often will become frozen in my tracks if I'm not able to help everyone, and so I don't help anyone. For example, you might think to yourself, if you, uh, having come from Seattle, for example, if you had a truck, if you have a truck and you live in a city, uh, this is a free life hack if you're a senior you're going to graduate. If you're going to go to a city and you have a truck, tell no one because you will become automatically everybody's moving service. People don't have trucks in cities. If you do, they will ask you every single time they're going to move from one apartment to the other. And so you may think to yourself, well, if I help one person, everybody is going to take advantage of me. So I will help no one. You may think if I volunteer to be of use uh, in one ministry, well, I'm going to get asked to do every ministry. If I open my pocket to help one nonprofit or one disaster relief, then where does it end? And so we become frozen by not helping anyone because we don't want to have to help everyone. And this inability can cause us to live truncated lives. But this girl, with her limited influence, with her demographic distance, with all of the things that she is not and that Naaman is, steps into the moment and she offers her help. She does for one, what she wished she could do for all. And so she speaks up. As we're reading the text, she speaks up, and in verse 4, she has faith, and she swallows her fear that if it goes wrong, it's going to end badly for her. And she goes and says in verse 4 of 2 Kings chapter 5 that there is a prophet who is in Samaria. She says to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. If you've read this story before, this wouldn't really ring any alarm bells for you, but it does now for me. She is making a very categorical statement that if Naaman goes to Elisha, that what will happen? She'll be, he'll be healed. Luke chapter 4 Verse 27 brings a wrinkle in this story. Read this with me, then we'll think together. This is Jesus speaking hundreds of years later, centuries later. Jesus says, There were many people with leprosy living in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were healed. The only one was Naaman, and he was from the country of Syria, not Israel. Who sees the incongruency here? Do these two texts cohere? And you can speak back to me. She's just said, if you go to Elisha, he will do what? Heal you. We go to Jesus. Jesus says the only person who was healed was Naaman. What's the problem here? Say that again for me, Clint. He's never healed before. I've always read the story and thought, oh yeah, he knows that Elisha's the OG of healing. Send sick people to Elijah, to Elisha. He's going to take care of them. No, my friends, he never healed anyone of leprosy before. Where does she get off believing that Elisha can heal Naaman when he's never done it before? 
Ooh, I'm telling you, this girl challenges me. You know, you read the Bible sometimes and all of a sudden stories you've read before hit you in new light and you think, oh, I can't move on now. This, this is just messing up my entire flow. Because are you telling me, God, that there are times in my life or in our life where we need to have faith that you're going to do something which you've never done before? Are you telling us that you are calling us to have faith that you are going to move in the life of our family in a way that you have never done before? Even though we have not seen it and it may not happen again, that in this instance, you are saying, hey, it may seem insane, but right now you're in a situation like Naaman where the only way your son or your daughter is going to come out of this is if you ask me for the impossible. And you're thinking, well, you've never done it before. That's right. We are people who believe that the grave was not the final word, that there was resurrection, that there was life, that God does the impossible, that he does things he has not done before. And I think about this school year as we begin, as we sit as a congregation and we think about the dreams and the hopes we have for Walla Walla University as we think about what God may be up to. How many of us may be prevaricating and not making a bold step in faith for what God should do on this campus because, well, he's never done it before? It's impossible. Are you kidding me? You know how different we are. You know how tough the times are. You know how on and on and on. And yet we have this goal, faith in Jesus Christ to be able to do what he has never done. And so this girl with the stakes high goes to Naaman, this violent, angry, powerful, mighty man of valor, and she makes her request. And I know I may seem to be throwing Naaman under the bus saying he has anger problems, but he really does. Naaman is an angry man. Naaman needs to see a counselor. Naaman needs to work things out. He needs to get his Enneagram score, figure out which one his wing is, and do some deep soul searching. <laughs> when you go to the rest of the text in verse 11, look at the description that's given. Naaman went away, what's the word? Angry. And he's angry because the way he's going to get healed isn't the way he wants to get healed. And then he says, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And then the next verse. And, and then he goes, are not uh, Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. That's two, two verses. He's been angry. He's been raped. He's been in a rage. And so imagine this is how he reacts when someone says, hey, um, you just won the lottery. You're going to get killed. You're going to get, not killed, healed of an incurable disease. And he's mad. And so this girl takes a massive leap of faith to go to Naaman and to say, I know how you can be healed. She takes a huge step. And although she was limited in her influence, she did for one what she wished she could do for all. And I think about this girl, and I wonder whether most of us 
in situations like this would be able to take the step forward. I know that the most difficult thing for me, when I have to be put in a situation where I have to extend myself, is often embarrassment. You know, awkwardness is like the toxic, you know, it's the kryptonite of this generation. No one wants to do anything that's awkward. It's gonna be awkward. It's gonna be awkward. It's gonna be embarrassing. Like, I, would, I, I would rather, you know, do advanced maths than do something awkward. Like, I just cannot do it. And this girl, knowing that she could be laughed at, she could be set aside, goes ahead, and she steps into a situation to help someone who is demographically distant, different, and unknown to her because she believes that going to God can bring her healing. I think we live in a time and an age where embarrassment stops us from sometimes listening to the call of God in our life. You know, embarrassment is, it's guttural. If you've ever received a spam email asking you to send iTunes cards because your uncle or your nan is stranded in Timbuktu and needs it for a visa to get back and on and on and on. And for some reason, you know, they used the comma in the way that your grand did. And so you thought, oh, it has to be grandma. And you just send it. Now you're embarrassed. And your embarrassment stops you from seeking the help that you need. You may have gone through uh, situations like this where you have a tax bill which you have to pay or your water is going to get shut off. And you make a mistake and embarrassment stops you from doing the right thing. But she did not let embarrassment prevent her from doing what God had called her to do. And in 2019-20, we have people in this church who have been praying. Students, we're glad you're here. You have people who are praying for you every single day. And you have people who are like Naaman's uh, servant girl, praying that God will do something this year in your life that he has never done before. They are praying like Magnifique was talking about, that the Holy Spirit will descend in such a way that you will have to contend with the Spirit in your life and you will be forced to make decisions for him in a way you have never done before. And when I think about this church, the university church, the university church, the university church, our raison d'etre is that we are a university church. And we have to understand with perspicacious clarity. I use those two words for a reason. Crystal clear that we exist and our mission is toward the university. If a bomb hit across the street, this would not be the university church. It would be a beautiful, warm church, a glorious church, a loving congregation, but we would not use the title university church. We use that title and it means something. It focuses our attention. It sharpens our budgets. It helps in our hiring decisions that we are a university church. It puts an onus on all of us as part of this community 
to recognize that we have been given the opportunity to be shepherds, to be midwives, to be stewards of the university and of the students who come through these doors. We recognize that God has called us to people who are in many ways very different to us. People who you, do, you don't understand how you can have an entire conversation with your friend using memes. What is that? You don't understand how you can have an entire conversation using emojis. What is that? Different in so many ways. And we can become frozen when we look at the mission in front of us. And so we do nothing. And yet... This servant girl is pushing us, is pushing me to sharpen our focus about why we are here and why we exist. And here in 2019, 2020, lies the greatest opportunity, I believe, one of the greatest opportunities, let me dial it down a notch, one of the greatest opportunities for spiritual maturation for all of us in this congregation. If you have children, you know that your children can be the greatest opportunities for you to become more like Jesus because you know they can drive you insane. And you know that without Jesus, we would have lots of us, I'd probably be there with you, spending the night in jail. You'd be like, why are you in for? Yeah, my kid, yeah, me too. Yeah, drove me nuts. Crazy. And so we have here students who are so different to us, and I believe we have a challenge and a summons to be stewards of what God has given to us in the same way that young girl was for Naaman. And of course, to say that with a student population of 13, okay, I'm sorry to do this to you, Jody. So just shout, how many students do we have enrolled this year? Total, 1950, 1850. Okay, so I'm gonna be salesman and round that up. Almost 2,000 <laughs> students that we have the opportunity to steward, to shepherd, to be part of their growth and their maturation. And I am convicted, Walla Walla, that this be not a graveyard for untested faith, but this be a runway for deep and abiding faith. And that only happens in the context of a local church. That only happens in the context of adults who are committed to them, even though you don't know what sliding into DMs is on Snapchat, even though you don't know what Fortnite is. You have no idea. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. But what matters is that you make a commitment and we together say we are here as a university church with our North Star pointed toward the potential people, the nurses, the doctors, the engineers, the plumbers, the English teachers, the future professors of this world. They come and they congregate here. And we have an opportunity to be part of their faith formation. This is a call to us. And I know the embarrassment and that's why we want to crystallize this and say, this isn't for everyone. We're not asking for heroes with capes. We're not asking for you to go and save the kids. 
the students, not kids, you are adults. We're not asking you to do that, but we are asking that you do for one what you wish you could do for all. And yet we live in a space now where we have perpetual elevator spaces and it's difficult to live our life in community, right? Once upon a time before you had tablets and phones, before you had AirPods, before you had anything that could cloister, you know, cloister you in your own world, the, the most embarrassing places, and I'm sure you're all going to agree with me, was the elevator. Terrible, horrible. You go into an elevator, you just pray no one else comes in. Because when they come in, you hold your breath, awkward conversation, maybe someone says something about the weather, you get out of there as fast as possible, you don't look back, and you just pray, Lord, don't let me get in an elevator with a human being again. <laughs> and now we live in a society where we can have perpetual elevator spaces. You go to class before the professor gets in. Talk? Why am I going to talk to someone? I can be on my phone. You are in the cafeteria. Talk? Why am I going to talk? I can have my AirPods in. And so we can create perpetual elevator spaces where we don't talk to each other. And when that happens, it becomes difficult to be able to connect with students, connect with them in a way that makes a difference. And the challenge for us is to traverse this demographic cultural um, spaces and to step into it like Naaman's servant, and to recognize that God is calling us to make a difference in the life of at least one student this year. I think of our mentors, a phenomenal program that the university has, where students are put in groups and they have an adult who they can go and talk to, who if they have problems, they can go to them on a weekly basis. And yesterday, they launched the mental program. One of them had a corn roast in his home. We had students there who were talking, who were gathering, who were praying. It was incredible. And another mentor this morning, this very morning, so if you are here and you were not in first serve, this was not in my sermon, because they told me in between the service that as a mentor, uh, they have realized the deep privilege it is to be a part of these students' lives, that they have seen how often being close to these students allows them in times, and this was their words, not mine, where let's say, for example, you have a student that walks in who has got a demeanor or who has got a disposition or dress in a way that you might find uncouth. Rather than going off the rails, this mentor starts to go through the stories in her mind. I remember that one Walla Walla student who came and who had such dysfunctional family, and they didn't realize until she was younger that the grandfather had been abusing them, and that's why she was acting in that way. Or she would remember a student who was here suffering silently because a parent's marriage was falling apart and so their grades started to plummet. Or she would remember another student who had grown up so closeted by their parents and so protected by their parents that they live in perpetual anxiety because they don't know how to navigate the world themselves. And they come, they're here, they're amongst us. And so when they come, she would see it as a privilege to be able to work and pray on behalf of these students. And this is the mission. This is the opportunity 
for us to be a runway to send people, to send students formed in the way of Jesus who are going to make an impact in this world. And to do that, my friends, we have to be willing to be a little uncomfortable to traverse these differences that exist, real differences between me and the students, between you and the students. And the challenge is real. I don't make light of it. But to help you, I'm going to ask this morning, in a moment, and it's going to involve you standing up, it's going to involve you making a decision. And I'm, I'm seeing, I, I can already see the thought bubbles around some people's heads like, oh no, oh no, this is an altar call. I am not doing an altar call. Calm down, folks. This is not an altar call. Dr. Scott is not going to be playing just as I am. Just calm down. Let's take it down from like nuclear grade fear. This is not that, okay? Now let's move on. But what I am going to ask you to do is in light of the students we have, the 1,850, 2,000 students that are here, that you say, God, I am willing to traverse my embarrassment. I am willing to traverse how uncomfortable I may be. And I'm going to commit to do for one what I wish I could do for all. I'm going to do for one student what I wish the local church would do for my son when they went to school in Philadelphia. I'm going to do for that one student what I wish the local church in Portland would do when my son graduates or my daughter graduates and starts their career there. I'm going to be that person that I wish someone would be for my nephew, for my niece, for my child, and I'm going to do it here. How are you going to do that? Okay, we're going to bring something that if you're at the back just looks like a whiteboard that hasn't been cleaned. It's been cleaned, friends, but on this whiteboard we have some magnets. These magnets are blank. These magnets are blank because you are going to write the name of a student on there if you are a member of the Walla Walla University Church. Now, you're not going to write just any name. You're going to write the name of a university student. You're going to introduce, your, introduce yourself. I, my introverts, I feel you. You want the floor to open up. You're saying not in a million years. Just like, I will give you $1,000 in church budget. Don't make me talk to anyone. It's okay. Don't worry. Take a deep breath. One, do for one what you wish you could do for all. And I'm going to invite you, if you recognize that there are students and there is a mission that we have uniquely, that no other church has in the union, that we have right here, that you come to the front and you take one of these magnets and you find a student when you're, when you're at Andy's or when you're at Roger's Bakery or when you're walking down Fort, you bump into a student when you are on campus or in the cafeteria and you do this. You go, <laughs> hi, and the student will say, hey. <laughs> And then you say, this may be awkward, but, um, you know, I'm part of the university church. We care about students, and I would really love to pray for you this year. And they're going to look at you and be like, in their head, they'll be like, that's weird. And they'll be like, okay, cool. And then you're going to say, so what's your name? They'll tell you your name. 
and then you write, okay, Adam, I'm praying for Adam. And then you're going to go home and write Adam's name on this refrigerator magnet. And every day, or whenever you think about it, you're going to pray for Adam or Cecile for 2019, 2020. You don't need to understand them. You don't need to become a Jedi in millennial talk or culture. Not necessary. Just take their name and pray for them. Who thinks they can do that? I'm going to invite all of you who said, I am committed to do that. Just come to the front. Take one of these magnets. Take one of these magnets and take it home with you. Find a student you don't know and write their name. Put it on the fridge for the year and pray for them for this year.